BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The racial injustices experienced by millions of Americans have been brought to greater attention in recent weeks. Among those Americans are members of our scientific community who have endured their own instances of racial discrimination along their path to success. Many have felt marginalized, placated, and that they are often not being offered the same opportunities as many of their fellow colleagues. Joining me today are three incredibly talented atmospheric scientists, Dr. Brad Johnson, Dr. Melissa Burt, and the Weather Channel's own Tevin Wooten. While we each have had great achievement in our careers, we have still felt that the added pressures of working twice as hard to be considered equals in our respective fields. Our goals in this discussion is to share the stories of our personal challenges throughout our careers and offer a guide for others that the, to know that they aren't alone. The Weather Geeks team is proud to support this effort and show that by embracing diversity and inclusion, we can be a stronger scientific community. Guys, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having me. So I want to, an interest, and, I, and let me get rid of that gender-specific tone too. Uh, gentlemen and ladies, thank you for joining Thanks us on the Weather Geeks podcast. But I think that was a microaggression, and I want to talk about many of these things throughout the discussion because they're things that we all do uh, in, in our day-to-day -day that can kind of get lost in the shuffle. And so uh, I want to just introduce you to the guests. I want to give you some of their credentials. Uh, first up is Dr. Brad Johnson, who is an assistant professor at Florida State University. Brad also serves on the American Meteorological Society's Board of Early Career Professionals, uh, which is aiming to assist young professionals uh, providing tips and tricks to succeed in the weather, water, and climate enterprise. He got his PhD from the University of Georgia and his master's and bachelor's degree from Florida State University and Iowa State University, respectively, and his research is focused on urban meteorology. So, Brad, thank you for joining us. Uh, next is Dr. Melissa Burt, who is the Assistant Dean for Diversity and Inclusion at Walter Scott Junior College of Engineering at Colorado State University. Uh, she's also a research scientist in the Department of Atmospheric Science, and she is committed to bringing uh, improved diversity and inclusion into STEM programs, particularly in our field, and also uh, helping many historically underrepresented groups. She serves as the chair of the American Meteorological Society's Board of Women and Minorities, and she was selected for an AMS Early Career Achievement Award in 2017. Melissa, thank you for joining us as well. Thanks for having me, Marshall. And, oh, I should also mention, because I, I don't want to sort of uh, miss, uh, miss this point, she has her PhD and master's degree from in atmospheric sciences, also from Colorado State University, and her research focuses on Arctic clouds, radiation, and sea ice with interest ranging from cloud radiation feedbacks to hydrological and energy cycles and climate change feedbacks. And last but certainly not least is Tevin Wooten, who has a bachelor's degree in meteorology from Florida State University and a BA as well in broadcast journalism from the University of Arkansas. Uh, he has served as the president of the North Florida chapter of the American Meteorological Society and the National Weather Association. He's also an Emmy and I, let me say that again, Emmy award-winning weather anchor as well. 
He received the Presidential Volunteer Service Award in high school for community service. Tevin, thank you for joining us. Thrilled and humbled and, and glad to be here, Dr. Schaefer. Well, let's just dive right in now that we've got the formalities out of, out of place. Look, you know, we know this is 2020 and uh, 2020 has been an interesting year, but one of the things 2020, I think, has brought to, to the forefront, finally, perhaps for others, are some of the challenges that still exist in terms of race. So I want to get your initial thoughts on all of that, but be before I do that, every weather geek's guest has to answer this question. How did you get interested in weather or climate? I'm going to start with Melissa. Sure. Um, thanks, Marshall. Um, <clears throat> I got interested in weather and climate. I think like a lot of people, it was because of a fear. Now I will say I grew up in Maryland, so outside of DC. And my biggest fear was that we were gonna have a tornado come through here, which as many of you know, tornadoes don't actually really happen in this area. So it started as a fear. I used to call the National Weather Service hotline every day to find out if we were gonna have a tornado warning in the area. And so it started off as that fear, then turned into wanting to gain more knowledge and more information about how these phenomenon happened and it just continued and propelled throughout, you know, elementary school to middle school into college and then, you know, further than that. Yeah. So your story is uh, similar to many people in meteorology. Tevin, how about you? Uh, mine actually was very atypical. Um, I had zero interest in meteorology when I was in high school and middle school and even elementary school. There was no, you know, tornado that came through my backyard or anything like that. It was more so, um, I've always had a love for math and science. I was not an athlete, so I didn't really fit in that sort of uh, realm. So I had to find a different avenue to, to fit in. And for me, it was through uh, public service and volunteering in math and science throughout high school and middle school. Um, and eventually, I went to the University of Arkansas. Dr. Shepard, in that introduction, you mentioned that uh, my first degree was in broadcast journalism, but I initially went for engineering um, because I did like science and I liked math. But as I got involved more so with engineering, it's not that I hated the field at all. I interned with NASA at Marshall Space Flight Center, even in high school. So I have a strong love for all math and science, but engineering was not the thing that I thought. I think so often, especially in the African-American community, you have these aspirations to be, um, you know, the, the top three is, oh, you want to be a doctor or a lawyer or a pediatrician. But there are so many more avenues that I think that we have to expose our, our children and our nephews and our cousins and, and those that look like us too. And meteorology was that thing that I finally found after recognizing that um, you could be a scientist and you could also have fun and you could also smile and welcome people into your homes or into their homes. Um, and that's where weather and meteorology stepped in. So I went from Arkansas to Florida State for, for that. And before, before I let Brad answer that question, I, I don't want to leave the point that you made, because also as, a, as someone who did very well in school and high school, everyone always assumed I was going to go be a lawyer or a doctor as well. <laughs> right. I think culturally in our field, culturally, for many of us, particularly African-American and other communities uh, that aren't represented very well in STEM, I think there's this cultural sort of perception that those are the successful careers, right. because that's generationally, that's what many of our parents and grandparents knew is the successful careers going into business, law. Mm -hmm. And those are great careers, but there are also ecologists and engineers and civil engineers and atmospheric scientists. So I want to touch on some of those because the question that's coming later in the podcast is going to talk about why we are at about 2% African-Americans in the um, American Meteorological Society community. And I know our our Hispanic or Latinx um, uh, weather folks are probably even a little bit less than that in, the, in our Native American 
American colleagues are even less than that. So I want to deal with some of these sort of historic and systemic issues of why we are. And by the way, before we get to Brad, I'm Brad coming to you. If you're listening to this podcast right now, you're saying, wait a minute, Dr. Shepard. Um, I thought we got, you were going to talk about tornadoes and hurricanes and weather. Why are we talking about this? I mean, I don't, this is not an issue that, that, I mean, I face and indeed that may be the case, but I hopefully you are willing to sort of stay with us for 35, 40 minutes and just eavesdrop in because part of the reasons these conversations are perceived as difficult is because we avoid them. And so I want to have this conversation on Weather Geeks today, and I thank, thank my three colleagues for coming in. Now, Brad, Brad what, you, what got you into the field? And great. It's actually kind of a mix between Tevin and Melissa's response there, um, but mine's a little bit more traditional than Tevin's in that it did start from the event. I can recall um, I live, grew up in South Louisiana, and in first grade, it snowed once, and it never snowed before, and it didn't snow after this. So I always started finding myself asking the question why, and then I started this is around the same time the Weather Channel was being brought to cable networks, so I started watching it on a daily basis. Um, just and that was my main outlet, other than local meteorologists, to really learn more about the science. Um, and then a little bit later on, when Hurricane Andrew hit South Louisiana, that's the part, and most people don't realize that Hurricane Andrew actually made landfall in South Louisiana. They think about South Florida, um, but I recall um, this huge oak tree was next to our house. And my mother was terrified about this because during Hurricane Betsy, when she was growing up, she remembered them being uprooted, um, like huge hundred year oak trees. So she took us to a shelter and that night we went to sleep and it was super quiet. And the next morning she woke me up and took me to the front door of the shelter and I could see the wind blowing sideways and I'd never seen anything like that before. Um, and, and then if I looked a little bit further into the distance, I saw two figures, one larger, one smaller, and it was a, and they were walking kind of sideways in the wind, you know, because the wind is too strong for you to walk in a straight line. And that image burned into my mind. It was a, it was a lady and a young child and their window had blown out of their house and they made a decision to try to get to the shelter. Um, ever since then, I've been thinking about, you know, how do these, where do these storms come from? What makes them, um, and even weather in general and how it impacts the people's lives and what decisions do they actually make? Um, so I started asking why at that point. And so, so you heard about how some of these colleagues of mine got into the field. And we are in a field where, as I mentioned earlier, about 2% of the meteorological community is African-American. And there are various reasons. I've written on this in the past in Forbes in various places, but I want to get your perspectives on what? Just give me one thing, and we'll circle back around to others, but give me from your lens as someone that's been in this field or has entered this field, why is it that we're seeing less African-American participation or other marginalized groups in our field? I'll start with Tevin on this one. I think it's all about, and this is the a generalization, of course, but I think it's all about the representation or the lack thereof representation. I had never seen I'm 27 years old, I'm young, but I've never seen, I had never seen a black meteorologist on television because that's my industry until I was about 24 wow. when I went to Florida State University. Of course, wow. and I do, I don't want to discount Al Roker. He technically is not a meteorologist from what I have found. And everyone knows him from the Today Show. But even then in his work on NBC, which is tremendous, but even then a local meteorologist, when I turn on uh, uh, local uh, news or local weather in Arkansas when I was growing up, I cannot recall a time seeing black meteorologists ever. 
So I think that so, lack of representation gets to the lack of exposure and the lack to uh, as to why we are not represented in a field. Yeah, I think that's a great point. You're hitting on this idea of sort of kids, you know, what, I'm sure you've all experienced this where you go out and speak to kids and you ask them what they want to be. And many of them say, I want to be LeBron James or right. Lil Wayne. Right. Because that's what they see. They don't see Brad Johnson's or Melissa Burt's. So um, I think there's this idea, and you know, coming up as a scientist, my, my one of my mentors was Dr. George Washington Carver, who was I, was dead, but that's someone that I read many books about because like you, I knew I wanted to be a meteorologist, but I didn't see any, but I know they were out there. So I, I think that's a key point. Brad, Brad, what are your thoughts on what, what, we're, what we're dealing with here and why the numbers are as they are? I would agree that it's, it's linked to representation. Um, it goes a, a couple steps further than that, I believe, in that um, it's hard for me to wrap my head around the concept of only 2% of our Black talent are drawn to the atmospheric sciences. It's something that impacts you on a daily basis. Everyone you know is either going through either a tornado, a flood, some type of damaging event that can provide, if at the best, a memory, but at the worst, PTSD or some type of financial or or even loss of life. Um, so for us to have that type of exposure, but still not have the individuals want to go into it, I think it's, it really starts in middle school when kids are told that, you know, math and science is too hard, it's not for you, or, or you should be looking to go into these fields like doctors or lawyers, or even now is even more cliche to go into engineering. Um, and even when you progress to the collegiate level, then you start to run into more issues of now if I want to go into this field of atmospheric sciences, I'm putting myself in a space where I don't look like anyone else and no one else looks like me. So on face value, that might be fine, depending on who the person is and what their temperament is and, and even how they interact and the people around them, how they interact with themselves and how respectful they are. But at a basic level, there's a cultural difference and a cultural shift there um, in that it's hard for them to understand exactly where this person of color, this black person is coming from um, with regards to their experiences with white people or um, with people of other colors or other races. Um, because that black person normally has been taught their entire lives to be very wary of those interactions because they have not mm -hmm. gone the way of either, whether it be their relatives, their, and definitely their ancestors um, or other people they've seen around the community. Um, and, and more than likely, that is stopping them from developing deeper relationships or even getting into things like study groups where you have past exams. Um, so you go to an exam and everyone else's, the mean score is a 95 and you, and you study all your might and you get a 75 on the, what did I do wrong, right? So you're, you're feeling isolated and ostracized, um, but it finally, for some people, reaches a tipping point where they think it'll be easier for me with my skill sets right now to cut bait and yeah, that's a great point, because if you look at I've looked at some of the National Science Foundation statistics and others, and like typically um, in certain fields, um, education and some of the soci sociological and related fields, our numbers are higher. And I think there are probably more mentors and more sort of people that look like certain people. And that, that is important. This, I think perhaps for some people that listen are listening to this. This may be something that just maybe you can't identify with because you're, you're, it's maybe you haven't always been sort of the only one in the room. And that feeling of isolation can drive many things then. So it's important to sort of understand that. Melissa, what's your perspective? 
Yeah, and, and I agree with everything that was said. The, the other piece that I will add is really, you know, who is a scientist? You know, I do a lot of outreach and I've gone into a number of different schools. And even though I'm standing there in the room in front of some of these young children, and I say, you know, who's a scientist in this room? Or draw a picture of what a scientist will look like. They will never draw a person that looks like me, right? Their first thing is a person who's wearing a lab coat who probably has crazy hair. I guess I could have crazy <laughs> hair, but I don't have crazy white hair at this moment, maybe. Um, but thinking about that, you know, they have no picture. There's no representation. And I think back to, you know, going through school. I, in any of my science classes or even any of my math classes from elementary, even through graduate school, I did not have one black professor. And I maybe had one person of color who may have been someone from an internet, from another country, right? Who was speaking and who was teaching, but I never had anyone who looked like me. And so you have those questions and the thoughts go through your head of, can I even do this? Is it even an opportunity for me to succeed? Because I don't see anyone who's like me in these places. And I'll say it comes back to when I came to being more involved with the American Meteorological Society, where I started seeing people, you know, I saw you there, Marshall. I saw some other people in the room where it's like, okay, there are people in our field who are succeeding, who are doing things. And you can use those as your community, right? I think it's really important that people find the community that they need, if it's folks that they look like, or, you know, in whatever manner that may be. Um, so that you can have someone that you can like throw an idea off of or say, I experienced this, you know, how do I persevere through this activity or how do I um, connect with folks in a certain way that can help me feel less isolated and feel that this is a place and this is a community and a, and a space that I want to belong in. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm joined by three of my colleagues, all of which I know very well, Dr. Melissa Burt from Colorado State University, Dr. Brad Johnson from Florida State University, and I should mention that Brad is one of my former doctoral students at the University of Georgia, so shout out for that academic lineage continuing, and I know he will have many of his own students uh, keeping that line going, and Tevin Wooten from the Weather Channel, one of the Weather Channel's best meteorologists, popular <laughs> meteorologists. I see him in social media. I'm, I'm blowing him up a little bit, but I know it's true. He, he's got his fan base out there. So shout out to you all for coming on. We're, we're talking about a topic that candidly may not resonate with some of the listeners. And I, I'm aware of that. And I want to give a shout out to our production team who we talked about this and wanted to do this show. It's 2020, the backdrop of George Floyd, Floyd Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, um, bird watchers being accosted and threatened in Central Park. I mean, this is the backdrop of what we are talking about 
in 2020. And the reason I think in a positive light, it, it, it shouldn't make you uncomfortable if you're, I, I hope you're listening and sort of engaging. Uh, I wanna ask the panelists a question. I mean, we just talked a little bit about what, what their viewpoint is on why, why there's underrepresentation. What is something that you would say to a colleague or a person that's listening to the Weather Channel, it's not African-American, that may be rolling their eyes at this conversation or maybe listening to this conversation and wanting to learn more about what we can do to move the needle forward on not just representation issues in our field, but just the narrative on race in general? What, what are some things that you would say? Um, I, I think for this one, I'll, and, and let me just add, I mean, I, I wrote a, a, a little book called um, The Race Awakening of 2020, where I try to deal with some of these topics. And one of the things that I, I brought out of those six is you have to see color. You often have people say, well, I don't see color. I mean, and that sounds like the right and sort of thing to say. I mean, it just makes us feel I mean, that that's a, but you, you, you don't say I don't see stripes on a tiger. That's the identity of that tiger. And so I think that there are these sort of things that people probably in their mind don't mean any harm, but they sort of propagate narratives. Yeah, understanding mm. and seeing color helps our identity and it helps us to understand where those challenges are. What are some things that you would say to Melissa, to uh, a colleague or someone that's listening to this that says, well, I, I, I can't live your struggle, but I want to understand. Right. I would say the fact that you are listening to this and engaging in this podcast is a good first step, right? I would say also that you may not be able to understand my experiences, but many of us do have empathy, right? And we can empathize with what people may be going through. We may never understand it, but also um, even just listening to this conversation, if it makes you feel uncomfortable, you know, there's times where I feel uncomfortable every single day when I walk into any space that I'm in but I have to deal with that uncomfortable nature and I have to continue the conversation and I have to get people to continue to listen and to hear and, and also just act on those things that they say. So I think we all deal with being uncomfortable at times. And I think you have to kind of take that in just a little bit and go with that because that's how many of us have to persevere and get through our daily jobs. Um, if it's just showing up in a meeting space, if it's having to be in front of television on, on television and just talking with people, I think it's just getting through that uncomfortable nature is, is one thing that you can do. Brad, what about your thoughts here? It's interesting and Melissa kind of hit on where I was gonna go with it. We, um, as, as black people or African-Americans, we have grown up to understand different cultures, um, understand how to operate within not only your own culture, your culture at home, the communal society um, that, you're, that you belong to, um, that your parents grew up in, even their grandparents. But we're also taught how to interact with the larger society's culture within those norms and within those, um, and oftentimes boundaries, um, knowing where to go, what type of places we can frequent, what, place, what places we shouldn't. Um, and I look at it from this perspective as human beings, if we have the ability to, in a sense, understand and sort of respect those, those boundaries at times, even if we try to push those boundaries, so, do, so does everyone else. Everyone else has the ability to understand someone else's culture, better understand why people operate in the way they do, understand why um, certain systems within certain communities operate differently than the ones that you operate within. Um, how, how does that impact your ability to navigate and reach this, this quote unquote American dream that everyone has um, 
out there for you. And, and, and for some people, that's very difficult. Um, if you grow up in, a, in, a, in an area that is very poor, right, um, it's, it's very hard for you to see examples of people who have made it out. Um, and you might know a lot of people who either didn't make it out or chose paths that, that weren't necessarily congruent with what society thinks you should do, and they may face mass incarceration. They may face even face death, right? Um, those types of things occur not only in Black communities, but also in white communities as well. Um, but in order to figure out how this applies to your life and what you can do to be more aware of it, you know, ask someone. You know, ask someone that you know, or you may think that you know about their experience, you know, and, and ask them without judgment, without the typical social media, or, you know, I really have this idea in mind, but I want to see what you think about it. But I know that I'm 100% right and your, your perspective is, is really going to mean less. Be sincere. It's really all about a fundamental baseline and it comes down to respect. Everyone wants respect for themselves. But in order to get respect from someone, you have to be able to willingly give it to someone else, yeah. to everyone else, mm. until they show you a reason mm -hmm. why they do not no longer deserve your respect. You have to give them the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. And, and Tevin, I know you're, you're someone in, as a broadcast meteorologist, you, you're seen by literally millions of people. And so you're carrying forth, you know, this microaggression. I mean, sure, you've all heard this. Oh, you speak so well or, yeah. or your credit <laughs> to your race. Those are microaggressions. Let me, just, let, me, let me get as specific as possible on that microaggression because I, I want to say this is something I've heard my entire life. It's, oh, you speak well. More particularly, it's, oh, you sound like a white person. And I don't know what that, to this day, I don't know what that means. I know what they're trying to say. You speak with good grammar, or you speak properly, or you speak with, you know, how English is supposed to be spoken. But to tell, you know, a 13-year-old or a 7-year-old kid that they, they talk white or they talk black, you're already instilling at them that that is not how they're supposed to sound typically. How does that look when they're, you know, 10, 20, 30 years down the line, and then they go up and they see someone else that does look like them, but they talk in a different way? Are they supposed to treat them differently too? You know, and I don't think people mean any harm by it, but it certainly has ridden with me and it stayed in my head my entire life. I've had black relatives tell me that too, and I know that they don't mean any harm, but man, we've got to lose that immediately, yesterday. <laughs> I've I've been on that one too because I had a colleague of mine who, are, who I wrote a, my first book with Fred Bortz who says it often and he's but I you know I talked to a lot of colleagues of mine that aren't African American or Black and they said I've never been told that when I walked off of a stage from a speaking <laughs> engagement I speak so well so it is one of these things that I think people aren't perhaps aware of you know I'll, I'll share a story and I want to come back to you Tevin I mean we um, can speak properly as well you know we yeah grew up we in the same classes we, speak, we yeah, read the same but, books. I, I, I kind of have um, went to college and grad school and all that stuff. <laughs> but um, one of the things I want to share, though, you know, you know, as president of the American Meteorological Society, and I've, you, some of you have heard this story. I was standing in the lobby with three or four other past presidents. We were all dressed in suits, but a woman came up to me and asked if I was the airport shuttle driver out of that group of men standing there. And it mm. was, you know, those types of things, I think, I point out not to for any reason that's sort of belittling because or anything like that, because they're, you know, that's a fine career being an airport shuttle driver. But my point is there was an, a, an, an explicit assumption, not implicit, an explicit assumption there. So Kevin, 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 what are you, 
Um, what are you likely to tell someone beyond sort of the microaggression and stop telling me I speak so well? What, what is something else that you would offer on the table that can help the broader community? Maybe listening to this, want to understand some of our, our, the struggle here. I think Melissa brought up a great point and Dr. Burt brought up a great point earlier to, to say that if you are comfortable, that's not the position you want to be in right now. You want to feel uncomfortable because you want to have these, con these conversations and continue this dialogue of how can we promote change? I think we're in a different part of this whole racial injustice conversation that we've ever been in before, at least in my lifetime. And to see the, the needle being moved a little bit so far in just the past few months has certainly been something that's been encouraging. But I think it goes back to also those who have not been a part of the conversation, get a part of the conversation and carry on that conversation with people who perhaps look like you, who is not a person of color, who has shied away from it before, because then you're bringing in someone else. And anytime you can bring in someone else who maybe they do want to see, you know, the change that we all believe in, you've got to talk about it because it's not going to happen, you know, hoping someone else will change it for you. You've got to, you've got to want to do it. And I think I, I've seen a lot of, I've had personally, and I'm sure all of us have, have had a lot of friends or relatives or colleagues or whatever text us and say, you know, I saw what happened on TV or I saw what happened to George Floyd. How can I be a part of the change? And it's great that we're starting that conversation with, you know, it's great that they're texting me, but I need them to text their relatives. I need them to text their uncles and their aunts and their and their coworkers because that's truly how you expand this thing out. Absolutely, and I think what you just said there is the spirit of what Dr. Martin Luther King, and that's that's who most people learned about about Black history in school, right? <laughs> right. Dr. Luther King. You know, it's much <laughs> only, only for a month. But. Yeah, Martin Luther King, Frederick Douglass, and maybe Rosa Parks, and there, there's, there's so much more to African American Black history that I would challenge all of the listeners to go out and listen to. But King said in his letter from a Birmingham jail exactly what you just said. I mean, it's, he was writing to white clergy during the civil unrest in Alabama in the South in the '60s, like, look, it's I. Can't can't make the change. You have to from your pulpits and from your circles. And so that's that's where I want to go. I want to pause for one second here and we'll pick up in the next segment. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.com. Dot edu slash podcast. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm talking with three colleagues, uh, African-American colleagues, Black colleagues who are 
in the field of meteorology, and as I said earlier, about 2% of the field is in terms of AMS data, and sometimes it may be in certain areas. I think it's even lower than that. I would, I would suggest that perhaps in the part of the, the field that Tevin's in, it might be slightly higher as a, rel, a relative number, but still extremely low. Uh, but in terms of uh, African-American professors at, in meteorology and, and STEM fields and universities or engineering schools or even in the corporate sector, very low numbers. So now I want to pivot the discussion to what it is we as a individual or collective, the AMS community, NWA community and others can do specifically to move the needle on the numbers. Because I've been at this, I was, and by the way, let me just say, because I, I mentioned earlier that Melissa was the chair of the um, Board of Women and Minorities for AMS. She's actually no longer the chair, but she has chaired that. And I, there was a time back in the mid nineties where I chaired that same committee as well. And those numbers were about the same, right? Mm. And, you know, decades later, they're still, so, you know, there's a lot of discussion and I will say that the numbers, I mean, I, I remember there was an event at the American Meteorological Society called the Color of Weather. Uh, two, hundreds of people show up for that now, but I remember when Color of Weather was me, Vernon Morris, Greg Jenkins, uh, and John Cortina sitting at a bar uh, eating dinner. That was Color of Weather. So we've definitely seen some numbers go up. But what is it that we can do within our communities? And I'm, I'm happy to hear about things that, you know, Brad, I know the, the early career board is doing some things, the Board of Women and Minorities. I'm just hearing, what, from your lens, what are things that are ongoing or need to be done? I'll start with Tevin on this one. What is your perspective, particularly, because I know there's some chatter among the broadcast community, even right now, among some people that we know in certain groups. Mm -hmm. um, what's your perspective on what we can do or what needs to be done? I think what we need to do in terms of recruitment, we need to reach out young. We've got to start this thing uh, no longer. We, we can't depend on, you know, students in 11th grade and 12th grade to say, oh, I want to become a meteorologist or an atmospheric scientist or an atmospheric engineer and hope that they make it. We've got to start in middle school or earlier even. I, I've spoken to second and third grade classrooms before and some kindergartners too, who they understand what a meteorologist does. They point at clouds or they research and they study the weather, but they don't truly understand what it takes to get there. And who blames them? They're in kindergarten or second and third grade. They're not supposed to. But if they don't know that black meteorologists exist, um, then they perhaps won't even be interested in the field themselves. So if we could reach out and start young and then follow through with that, make sure follow up from kindergarten to eighth grade to 12th grade, even when students get into college where they're perhaps facing the most difficult times of their lives because you go through so many personal changes, financial struggles as well, which is very big in the African-American community. Um, and unfortunately, meteorology degrees are not cheap. Uh, most degrees nowadays are not cheap, but meteorology specifically, because it requires so much math and so much science, you're likely going to be in school for maybe additional year for some people, which is okay. But the challenge that Black people have already and African-American communities face already and uh, people of color face is, we may not have the financial means to even get a student loan. How are we going to become a meteorologist if we can't get that student loan, if we can't stay uh, in school because we've got to work one or two or three jobs and then study on top of that financially? It's not even possible to do such a thing. So we've got to make it within reach for a, a lot of people of color. Brad, what, what, are, what um, are your thoughts on this? And I, Tevin, you hit a lot of 
great points in that. And I want to start with the last one that you made and, and build off the, the larger body of that because there's a financial cost of mobility in America if you are not one of the haves. If, if for generations your, your, your people have been subject to lack of home ownership and, you know, um, and the decimation of the family culture, and like it's very hard for you to accumulate wealth. The black tax is what you're referring to for those that have heard that before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, like that's a big part of it. And, and so if you don't find scholarships, often you're going to be riddled with debt. So how do we fix that um, on a smaller scale? Do we develop more endowments that are that are geared toward helping to funnel these students? into these types of positions. Um, but I think that the, the concept of, of catching people early is perfect. So I'm gonna move a little bit further beyond that to when they actually get on campuses to when they're in early career, we need better mentorship. And, and one of the things that I think is evident now that AMS I think should, and even NWA should probably latch onto is how do we prepare better mentors and realize that those mentors cannot necessarily be people of color. How do we better prepare white men, white women to be effective mentors for people of color? I'll give you an example of how that might work, right? So um, in my own personal life, when I first went to Iowa State University, maybe my second or third year, and I had an undergraduate advisor who was a professor there, and he mentioned to me, um, hey, are you, are you interested in going, ever heard about NCAR? Are you interested in going out there or anything like that? Now, I'm from Southern Louisiana. I'm in Ames, Iowa at the point at this point. I know nothing about Colorado. That's all I know about in cars. They do research <laughs> out in Colorado and I basically told them, mm, well, no, I haven't heard anything about it really. And that was the end of the conversation. Right. Now, how might this actually play? How does this relate to race and racism? Right? It's not, this isn't necessarily someone who is being a who is a racist. Right, but race played a factor in this because growing up, I'm taught whenever you're in conversation with anyone, particularly a white man, you don't want to say anything to make them feel like they could be disrespected. Right. So you always err on the side of saying nothing in the event that you don't have the information to engage intelligently with them. Me not knowing anything about NCAR, how can I ask a question that makes them feel like I really wanted to know? Now he could have actually been in a position as a mentor to want to help me, but did not realize that those walls were innately in place. So something that we had to do, we have to do moving forward, is have some type of cultural sensitivity infused into our mentorship programs. How do we make sure all of our mentors are prepared to engage with not only just black people, but also Latinx people and international students, right? Not just to get them in your labs to do the work for you, but to get them in positions where they can go out and flourish, right? Um, so that mentorship is not only confined to the undergraduate and the graduate level, but even once you get into early career, where well, we still lose a lot of great talent. And that's really, if you can think about it from the AMS or NWA perspective, talent is what we want and need in the atmospheric sciences. And there are a lot of talented people who are black and brown out here, and even women that we lose because they just do not feel like they have people that either understand them or look like them within that community. If you're gonna raise numbers, it's really you're really talking about a cultural shift, not only within one board or one committee, but from the very top across a sustained period of time. 
Yeah, and I, I and though we're talking from the meteorological atmospheric sciences lens on this show today, this is across the board in STEM. And I know Melissa, being in an engineering department, knows that. So, what what are your and I know that Brad, uh, some of the things that Brad was just talking about are some things that I know that the AMS Early Career Professional Board is uh, is thinking about and promoting. Now, Melissa's very engaged in the. Uh, Board of Women and Minorities that has been in the past and other things. I know she was also a very uh, important part of why that very powerful statement that the AMS issued uh, in the wake of Floyd and shout out to the AMS and the NWA and the AGU for coming forth with statements, powerful statements, not just band-aid, feel-goody type statements, but statements that need to be said. So Melissa, what, what do you think uh, the AMS and the broader community need to be doing? And I'll say even just putting out a statement and calling out the issues at hand and not hiding behind those issues that are out there is, is the first important step that each of these societies has been doing. So I'll speak and I agree with things that Brad said and also what Tevin said, but I'll speak more collectively thinking about our, our atmospheric science, weather, water, climate community, and thinking about from the lens of the American Meteorological Society, some of the steps that we have been considering. And um, thanks, Marshall, for indicating my previous experience with the Board on Women and Minorities. I will highlight there's a new um, culture and inclusion cabinet that was just newly organized uh, within the AMS organizational structure. And it's speaking to that specific point that Brad made there. How do we have a cultural shift across our society? How do we create a society that is anti-racist and ensures it stays in that space? And how do we make sure that this is something that is embedded within everything that we do? So I think for a very long time, um, and this is with many different organizations, many different institutions, they think of diversity and inclusion as a side activity. It's a piece that's over here. It does need to be implemented into the things that we do because that really speaks to the it not being as important as they may say. So how do we like bake diversity, inclusion, equity, social justice into the, all of the pieces that we do? And I think that's what this new AMS culture and inclusion cabinet is going to do really thinking about that cultural shift. How do we make sure that we are supporting, you know, pre-collegiate collegiate people? How do we support our younger students? How do we support our undergrads, our grad students, our early career professionals? Weave them into the work of the AMS to ensure that the things that we're doing are inclusive, that they're equitable, that people are being trained in appropriate manners, and how do they be effective in the work that they're doing? So I take it as how do we shape the organizations into being um, accessible, to being inclusive, to being equitable, and also where all members feel that they belong in that space. Um, I think it's important that we don't lose the talent that we have and we really focus around the retention. How do we keep people in the space? We have a lot of people that come into our field and we have a lot of people that exit our field. And there's something that's happening in that space what makes them want to exit. And many of it is because they don't feel as though they belong. So how are we creating the spaces that are appropriate and effective and supportive in a manner that can keep people in our field and see them kind of advance all the way to the leadership level? So maybe we will have more black and brown people as presidents of the AMS in the near future. I hope so. Um, yeah, and many I, I some of us so. here on this call <laughs> right, might be there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's, I, you know, I don't take it as a, a point of pride that I'm the, only the second African-American oh, behind Warren Washington to be the president. I mean, it's the organization's been around forever. So we unfortunately are coming to a point where we have to end this podcast. This is one that I we could go for a while <laughs> on. But before we do that, and by the way, before I, I ask each of each of our panelists for their social media presences, I'll get ready for that. I want to thank the listeners and I want to thank the production team and the weather channel 
because look, I know this podcast probably was difficult to consider from the production team or perhaps to listen to, but if you made it through it, I mean, I want to commend you because you're part of the solution. I mean, this is, this is, this is not probably the weather geeks where we're geeking out about like um, mesocyclones or like uh, outflow boundaries and things like that, which we do. We, we cover the gamut on this podcast and, uh, you know, being at the table with this podcast allows us to have this kind of conversation. So I want to thank all involved, uh, Sarah Dillingham and Heather Zons and others and the production team for helping pull this together and uh, all those others that are involved with the Weather Channel, because I think this is a conversation that all of us need to be having. Now, I want to go to each of us and just tell us where you can people can find you on social media. Tevin, where, where can people find you? Uh, so I'm pretty much everywhere, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. I think Twitter and Instagram are at Tevin Wooten, not Kevin, Tevin, uh, with a T. <laughs> my bad. <laughs> oh, I get it every single day, so it's fine. And then on Facebook, uh, at Tevin Wooten TV. So you can find me there. I'm active on all of those platforms, and you'll see a lot of pictures of weather and forecasts, of course, and then my newly adopted uh, Labrador mix. <laughs> I saw that. That's like, you know, you're putting pressure on my family to get us one here now. Brad, where, where can people find you? Sure. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at weatherproof. Um, and that's whether or not. So W H E T H E R P R O O F. That's because someone else had weatherproof and they've been acting for like inactive for like 10 years, but <laughs> neither here nor there. Um, but you can find me there. And I'm also on LinkedIn as Bradford Johnson. And if you really can't figure out any of that, Look up Bradford Johnson, Florida State University, Department of Geography, and you'll be able to catch me there. All right. Melissa, how about you? Sure. And I don't have the, the Twitter following like you do, Tevin. But I'll say, <laughs> um, on Twitter, it's at Dr. Underscore Melissa Burt. So you can find me there. Also on LinkedIn as well. And I just want to come back to what you just said there, Marshall. You know, it's all of our responsibility to do this work. You can't just focus on the brown and people of color, brown, black, people of color. It's all our responsibility to take action, to listen, to act, and also to lead in this in this um, activity. Absolutely. Now, before I get out of here, we have to do what we always do on the Weather Geeks podcast. It's time for our Geek of the Week. We like to highlight a scientist superstar, a great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is Lorante Barbie or Laranta Barbie. He is a young weather forecaster for the Tennessee and Kentucky area. Even though he loves giving forecasts for the Mid-South, he really loves winter weather. He loves it all season long and not just when you get a snow day out of school. If you or someone you know would be a deserving candidate for our next Geek of the Week, check out our social media pages on Twitter or Facebook. Guys, thank you, ladies and gentlemen. So that, that's what I want to get that guys. I was going to say guys, thank you, ladies and gentlemen women, boys, and girls. <laughs> Thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you. Thank you. I am. Thanks. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and this has been Weather Geeks. We'll see you next time on the podcast.